0: It's time for a conference once again. I know we were looking forward to seeing you all in person in Georgia. It's been a long time since I've been to a camp meeting in Georgia. But we know the circumstances are the way they are. And uh, with all the difficulties and a lot of restrictions coming into place in these winter months, it is a good time for us to seriously think about some of the final events. I know that we've been talking about some of those final events already during this conference. And right now we want to really think about preparation, preparation for the final events of this earth's history. Now, when we think about preparation, one of the things that we can think about preparation is some of the things that happen along the way. You know, when you want to get stronger, you start preparing by exercising. If you want to run a race, you got to start doing by running short races, things of that nature. And so God gives us things to help us prepare for the final events. Now we know that there is a real serious time coming up ahead. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, It talks about Michael standing up, and then it says there, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Can you imagine? Here is a time of trouble coming that never was like this particular time of trouble. But we also have a promise, and I thank the Lord for His promises. Notice the rest of the verse where it says, that, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So even though there is a serious time of trouble coming upon this world, like never was since there was a nation, in all the histories of nations, never is there going to be a time of trouble as that that is coming upon the world very soon. We have some idea about it with economic disruptions and everything else that came as a result of COVID-19. But somehow this is not anything yet in comparison to what there is to be in that future. And keep in mind when that time of trouble really hits, in Ezekiel 14 and verse 20, it tells us there that though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls." by their righteousness. In other words, as we are looking to the future events of this earth's history, we are going to be standing as individuals before our God. Now, you know, many times as we think of troubles, as we think of difficulties that are coming upon us in our life, we usually have a very fertile imagination. Our imagination goes over time, and we think of And then when the trial actually happens, it's like, well, it wasn't that bad. However, about this time of trouble that it speaks about in Daniel chapter 12, that is not the case. In Great Controversy, page 622, it tells us this way. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. But this is not true of the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. In that time of trouble, or in that time of trial, every soul must stand for himself before God. We are approaching that time of trouble that is going to be worse than imagination. Yes, there's not going to be a case where we can say, Ah, wow, I'm glad it wasn't as bad as I imagined. It's actually going to be worse than anyone can imagine. But at the same time, we have promises that God gives to us about those times of trial. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it says there, There had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Can you imagine this? That... Trials are coming worse than anyone can ever imagine. And yet, God has promised to us that whatever trial that we're going to go through during that time, He is going to give us the energy, He's going to give us the ability to be able to endure that trial. And it's not only speaking about the final events, it is about all the trials that God gives us along the way. And yes, God does give us trials. Trials in preparation for the final conflict. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 to 4, it talks here about what God is doing to prepare us for the final events. It says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness." Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. We find here that God wants to save His people. He wants to purify His people. And so what does He do? He purifies them as gold and silver. And gold and silver is purified in the fire. And so we may think here, why is it that we need so many trials? Why is it that we need to go through such a purification process? In Great Controversy, page 425, it says, Those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. We find here that we are going to have to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. And if we're thinking of standing without a mediator, we have to be purified to such an extent that we are prepared to stand before Him. It continues, Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon the earth. So I want you to think about this. As the investigative judgment is going on in heaven, there's a corresponding work among God's people here in this world, and that is the issue of purification. And it is for this reason that trials come our way. So how do we get purified? How do we go through these trials? Isaiah 48, verse 10 tells us, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Yes, there is a furnace that we're going to go through. It is the furnace of affliction. And this is why we have so many things that give us affliction and trials in our life. Now, What happens when we go through a trial and we don't pass through that trial? What happens? Bible Commentary, Volume 4, 1146. God's children are always being tested in the furnace of affliction. If they endure the first trial, it is not necessary for them to pass through a similar ordeal the second time. But if they fail... The trial is brought to them again and again, each time being still more trying and severe. So what happens if we do not pass the trial the first time? It comes back to us again. And it comes back to us again and again, each time being more trying and severe. Now, you may be thinking to yourself when you read something of this nature, what kind of a God is that? We don't pass. He brings it to us again and even harder. Well, you can look at it that way or you can look at it another way. And the way I see it is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it tells us why is it that God is giving us another trial, even harder than the first one. Why is that? It says here, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God loves you. Yeah, this is the amazing thing. God loves you. God loves me. And because God loves us so much, When we fail, he doesn't say, too bad, let it go. They're going to suffer anyway. No, he loves us. And because of his great love for us, he brings it back to us again and again, giving us an opportunity to be saved. God wants us to be saved. God wants you to be saved. And this is why we have to go through so many trials in our lives. So how is it that we can actually go through a trial a shortest amount of time as possible? How is that? 1 Peter 4 verse 12 tells us, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Well, the quickest way to go through it is to realize that trials are a normal part of our life. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you are still going to have trials. Everyone goes through trials and difficulties in their lives. The blessing for believers is is that God gives us the strength to be able to endure. And for this reason, instead of praying, "Lord, help me get rid of this trial," Or help us that trials don't come. Instead of praying for that, we need to have a different type of prayer. And this prayer is found in volume 1, page 310. It says there, we are too quickly discouraged and earnestly cry for the trial to be removed from us when we should plead for patience to endure and grace to overcome. You see, this is really what we should be praying for. Instead of praying for these trials to be moved away from us, rather we should pray for grace to endure, the strength to be able to be overcomers. And so as we are facing almost a new year, as we're looking forward to the future and looking at the difficulties that may come along our way, we need to pray for that endurance. We need to pray for that strength. We need to pray for the grace of God. Now, why is it that there are trials? Why is it that all these things may happen to us? Is it that we can have a harder experience in life? You know, there's a wonderful verse that I think about often, And that's John chapter 15 and verse 11. Jesus says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. In reality, trials can produce joy. You may think, how is that possible? Well, just think about the tests that we have in school. We know that there are tests. Some of them are very complicated, very difficult. And we're preparing for that test. And as we are preparing for these exams and all these things, we may uh, work on our health to make sure that we are as healthy as possible, work on our minds so they be as clear as possible. We work on our memory by studying over the material. And all, we may even have to say, sorry, I can't go to that social event. Why? Because I have to prepare for this exam. And then what happens when you pass it? What happens when you pass it, instead of barely passing it, you pass it with a very good mark? What then? Well, then you are happy, aren't you? So let's take a look at our life. Let's take a look at all the trials that happen in our experience. In Volume 6, page 365, it says, The bright and cheerful side of our religion will be represented by all who are daily consecrated to God. We should not dishonor God by the mournful relation of trials that appear grievous. And now notice this, all trials that are received as educators produce joy. Can you imagine this? Yes, just like in school, when you consider an exam and you know that it's a part of your education and your training, it results in joy. And so it is in our Christian life all trials that are received as educators will produce joy. And that's what God wants in our experience. He wants us to look at the trials that come our way and then our reaction to them should be that it produces joy. And don't forget that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that God promises to do what? He promises to make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Let me read it again. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Yes, God is making a way, not that we escape the trial, but that we may be able to bear it. This is why when we look at trials, there's a purpose to it. We look at the life of Jesus. He went through many trials. There were purposes for that. In Desire of Ages, 128 to 129. Yet we should not lose courage when assailed by temptation. Often when placed in a trying situation, we doubt that the Spirit of God has been leading us. But it was the Spirit's leading that brought Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Who led him there? It was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness. Now, with what was the purpose that the Holy Spirit led him there? It continues. When God brings us into trial, he has a purpose to accomplish for our good. Jesus did not presume on God's promises by going unbidden into temptation. Neither did he give up to despondency when temptation came upon him, Nor should we. In other words, we are not to go and ask the devil to tempt us. That's not the point. We are not to go unbidden into temptation. But when temptations do come, we have the promise that God will be with us. And if we trust in him, we will be able to overcome. We will be able to be purified by the trials that come our way. In Signs of the Times, December 18th, 1893, God has apportioned the temptation in proportion to the strength He can supply, and He never permits us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist or to endure. This is the promise that God has given to us. And I thank the Lord. For his promises. But you know, sometimes we create our own problems. I just think about the disciples just before the crucifixion. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, we find here the problem that the disciples had even on the way to the crucifixion. It says there, and he came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Here it is, on the way, just a few days before the crucifixion, and they're still arguing who is going to be the greatest. Who is the one that's going to be the one that's going to be Uh, the highest in the kingdom of heaven. You remember the case in the upper room. This this previous example was on the way back from the Mount of Transfiguration. But even the day before the crucifixion, what happened? They're there in the upper room. They know that a servant needs to wash someone's feet and they weren't going to do it. Not one of them was willing to serve. And then at the time that they were still looking at each other, no, no. I'm not the servant. You are. You're going to do it, not me. At that time, it says here in verse 4 and 5 in John 13, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. Not only did he talk important principles and try to teach them to his disciples and to us, he himself oftentimes practiced what was seeming the most humiliating thing, and yet they were the most wonderful things that a person can do. He was showing us where real joy was. And can you imagine the joy of Jesus Christ? Yeah, there was sadness at that moment, but he looked forward to that future joy when these disciples were willing to die for him. Yes, they were so eager to do the will of God, and that's why he was eager to wash their feet, because he saw their character. But you see, I mean, he saw their future character. Their current character was not the best. I mean, when you think about evangelism, How do you deal with opposition? How do you deal with people that are rejecting the message? Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, prior to the crucifixion, the disciples had their own version. And notice this. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Ah, this is amazing here. Yes, that beloved John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and the character of love is attributed to him. That disciple prior to the crucifixion had the character of dealing with opposition by having fire come down from heaven and just wiping them all out. Can you imagine that type of evangelistic outreach? There'd be nobody saved. Ultimately, we ourselves will be destroyed. What about Peter? How was his? consideration of dealing with opposition. You find this in John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And we know that he was not aiming for the ear. He missed. Yet that's what he was prepared to do. He was prepared to defend himself and the gospel. You get the picture of the type of disciples that they were. Now even when we talk about evangelistic programs, after the crucifixion, they had the crucifixion, Out here is, Sabbath had gone, and now here they are uh, on Sunday evening, the first day of the week evening, and where were they? Where were these evangelists, as we call them? In John 20, verse 19, it tells us where they were. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. So here they gathered themselves together in the upper room because they were terrified of persecution. Yeah, that's what they were. They were afraid of persecution. And yet, when Jesus was taken a prisoner, he had made sure of something. We find this in Desire of Ages 741. The priests and rulers had been bound by a promise not to molest Christ's followers if he himself were delivered to them and the disciples and believers from the city and the surrounding region joined a throng that followed the Savior. We find that Jesus made them make him a promise. They made a promise. You know, that was it. At first they tried to get Jesus, then they fell back, and Jesus says, look, you want to catch me? You need to let these guys alone. And so they promised to let the disciples go, and then he allowed himself to be bound. And so, in reality, there was no persecution. They were terrified. They were terrified of everything. They were terrified of all the uh, persecutions that's gonna come around. And yet, there was no persecution. Can you understand that there was no persecution? And yeah, what were the Jews doing? They were on the other side of town doing what? Desire of Ages, 785. The priests and rulers were in continual dread, lest in walking the streets or within the privacy of their own homes, they should come face to face with Christ. They felt that there was no safety for them. Bolts and bars were but poor protection against the Son of God. Never more would the peaceful sleep come to their pillows. I want you to think about the persecutors as the disciples thought. What were they doing? They were on the other side of town as well. And what were they doing? They were locking the doors just like the disciples were. They were afraid that they are going to find Jesus somewhere because they knew something was wrong. They knew the truth. You see, so they were afraid. And so... Both the persecutor and the persecuted were afraid of what? There was no persecution going on. And so these disciples had an imaginary fear. And you know, that's what happens to many of us. We study Bible prophecy, we look at all these events, and we're terrified of how strong persecution is going to be. And then we bring it as if persecution is happening today and it's not really a lot. Now, it is true that we are having some limitations and we need to evaluate that when we are being forced not to meet together in church capacity and things of that nature. We have to be able to have a different experience. But many times we're afraid. If the government says close down your church for the next six months, what will we do? We would close it down. Yes, I understand we have online ministries, but that's not the same because we need personal fellowship as well from time to time on a regular basis, especially as we see the second coming of Christ. But the early Christian church was forbidden to have meetings. And what did they do? They were forbidden even to preach. And then what did they do in Acts chapter 5? Instead of being timid like that before the crucifixion or just after the crucifixion, in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 29, it says here that they were brought before the counselors. And then notice verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Yes, what happened? There was a change in their lives. And what made that change? What made Peter change from that timid man who refused to identify himself with Christ, even began to curse and swear to show that he is not associated with Jesus Christ, and then be able to come to them and say directly to them, I'd rather obey God than you. What made the difference? Well, what made the difference happened right during his failure. Right in the midst of his failure, as he was failing the test that God had given to him, he saw something right there, and God gave him the victory. And what kind of victory did God give him? How did it happen? In Luke 22, verse 61, here is the thing that will change our entire life to prepare us for all the future events that happen. It says here, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. I want you to think about this. You see, at that moment, when Peter was in the midst of failure, it was a massive exam that he was failing. Yes, he knew all about it, he was warned about it, and he was failing big time. And at that time, he looked at Jesus, and Jesus looked at Peter. That was the moment that changed the life of this disciple forever. In Desire of Ages, 7:12 to 7:13, as it describes this event, it says, "While the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips." and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. That's what he saw. He saw the face of Jesus. He saw himself in a way he did not see himself before. But he saw the love of Jesus. Now when we're dealing with people who fail their tests, yeah, in our church we deal with people who fail tests. Yeah, they go through different trials, they fail the trial. How do we treat them? What kind of look do we give to them? Do we give them the look of Jesus or do we give them the look that will scare them from the truth and they run into the hands of the enemy? Which one is it going to be? It goes on. The sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness, pierced his heart like an arrow. Conscience was aroused. Memory was active. Peter called to mind his promise of a few short hours before that he would go with his Lord to prison and to death. He remembered his grief when the Savior told him in the upper chamber that he would deny his Lord thrice that same night. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. We don't even know ourselves. We may make promises. We may look at all the things that we're going through. We may look at other people's failures and say, I would never fail like that. And here he was. He saw himself failing, and he didn't even know his own heart. And what did he do? What was the result? Where did that lead him to? Peter began to run. Yeah, as a result, he began to run. When his conscience was smitten like that, he began to run. In Desire of Ages 7, 13, it says, He pressed on in solitude and darkness. He knew not and cared not whither. At last, he found himself in Gethsemane. Have you found yourself ever in Gethsemane? Have you ever found yourself in a failure? You see, because until we do, we can never get victory. Because what is in Gethsemane? What was it that made Gethsemane such an important thing? It was actually just before the cross. Yeah, Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. And that is the preparation for the cross. And when you and I go to Gethsemane, we are prepared to receive the cross in all its splendor, in all its glory. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the preaching of, Of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The power of God is found in preaching the cross of Calvary. Yes, that's what it is. That's what we need today. We need to experience the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why the Garden of Gethsemane? Because the Garden of Gethsemane is complete surrender to the cross. That's what it is. And so if we talk about the cross, we must get to that garden where we make that complete surrender. And so as Jesus looked at his disciples, as Jesus looked at them, and realized that these are the people that are needed to present this message to the entire world, he realized they weren't ready. Even when Peter had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, he needed something to transform him. And this is why just before they went out into the world, Jesus gave them something. John 20, verse 22 and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Yes, they needed the Holy Ghost. Oh, but wasn't that the latter rain? Or in their case, the earlier? Wasn't that the day of Pentecost? No, this was something before. Before they can experience Pentecost, they must have a preparation. Today, we're talking about the latter rain. Before we can have the latter rain, we need the early rain. You can't have one without the other. In Testimonies of Ministers 506, the latter rain, ripening earth's harvest, represents the spiritual grace that prepares the church for the coming of the Son of Man. But unless the former rain has fallen, There will be no life. The green blade will not spring up. Unless the early showers have done their work, the latter rain can bring no seed to perfection. I want you to understand this. Unless the Holy Spirit prepares us for these events, we can't continue. And the latter rain is supposed to give us the preparation to do evangelism and then prepare our characters for the final coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, yes. But we need the early rain first. We need a preparation because our characters need preparation. In Volume 5, 2.14, not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. It is left with us to remedy the defects in our characters, to cleanse the soul temple of every defilement. Then the latter rain will fall upon us as the early rain fell upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Yes, I want you to think about this clearly here, that Our characters must be perfected. And that work of perfecting our characters is done by the work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Don't we need the Holy Spirit to work upon our hearts? Shouldn't we be praying now as we're about to enter a new year that the Holy Spirit may touch our hearts and our lives to prepare us for the work that is before us. So let's go now to the concern that most of us have. We often have been concerned about the Sunday Decree. Yeah, we we look at the different laws that are passed. We look at the constitutional changes that are slowly being made. Even now, the First Amendment is brought into question with the issue of the people peaceably to assemble. These are all questions that are bringing us to the thoughts of the last day events. But what actually brings about the Sunday law? Is it the coronavirus? Is it these things that bring about the Sunday decree? Let's take a look. Great Controversy 607. It says here, as the controversy extends into new fields and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, Satan is astir. The power attending the message will only madden those who oppose it. The clergy will put forth almost superhuman efforts to shut away the light lest it should shine upon their flocks. By every means at their command, they will endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital topics or these vital questions. The church appeals to the strong arm of civil power. And in this work, papists and Protestants unite. As the movement for Sunday enforcement becomes more bold and decided, the law will be invoked against commandment keepers. I want you to think about this. The reason for the Sunday law is not how wicked the world is. The reason for the Sunday decree is not all the events that are taking place in society and the civil powers trying to control the populace. No, that's been going along from the very beginning of time. As soon as uh, as, uh, nations existed, They wanted to control their people. As soon as someone becomes a leader, he wants to control people. That is the natural thing of civil powers. And this is why when we're talking about nations, in the Bible they're symbolized as wild beasts. Yes, wild animals, that would be a nation. That's its characteristic. But what do we find here? We find here not those things. Those things have always been what actually brings about persecution is the people of God preaching the message to the world. And keep in mind that the crux of our message is the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the whole issue involved here. And so, when this message goes throughout the world, the result is persecution. And this is why in... Volume 8, Testing for the Church, page 117. In God's Word, we are shown the consequences of proclaiming the third angel's message. I want you to pay attention here. This is talking here about preaching the message. What's the consequence of preaching the third angel's message? Let's read it again. In God's Word we are shown the consequences of preaching the third angel's message. The dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes, this is the consequence. The consequence, which is persecution, that does not happen because of what the world is doing it happens what the people of God are doing. Why is it that persecution is dependent upon what God's people are doing? Why is that the case? Great Controversy 605. The decree is not to be urged upon the people blindly. Everyone is to have sufficient light to make his decision intelligently. Notice this here. God is not going to bring the Sunday decree until the entire world is prepared for it. And how do they get prepared for it? They must know. They must make their decisions intelligently. If their minds are not clear on the issues involved, then they cannot have the test. When are they going to have that clarity? When the latter rain comes upon the people of God and they preach that message to the world. This is why the catalyst for persecution is God's people being faithful. And then it goes on. With the issues thus clearly brought before Him, whoever shall trample upon God's law to obey a human enactment receives the mark of the beast He accepts the sign of allegiance to the power which he chooses to obey instead of God. That's the choice that people are making. But the issues have to be clearly brought before their mind. And until that happens, until the world knows the issues clearly in their mind, then Something else is going on. And we find this in Revelation 7, verse 2 and 3. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Yes, the winds have to be held back until God's people are sealed. And then they receive the power of the latter rain, and then the entire world is clearly able to distinguish between the issues. And then, yes, then comes the Sunday decree. This is why in volume 5, page 452 to 453, it says, He will restrain the forces of darkness until the warning is given to the world and all who will heed it are prepared for the conflict. Yes, God is holding things back. You know, when I look back at this coronavirus, the deadliness, the potential deadliness of it was amazing. In the United States alone, they were forecasting 1.2 million people dying. And why is it that 1.2 million people did not die? Why is it? You know, people may talk about the mass, they may talk about all these other things, but in reality, it was the four winds being held back. Yes, some people, that you saw, some of, the, <clears throat> some of the consequences was there, but not all of it, not all that could have been. And yet worse diseases are yet to come. And why is it that they're being held back? It's because God is restraining the four winds. And so when we look at our own experience What is it that we need to do? What is it that you and I need to do in order to hasten the coming of Christ, to end all these things? We know it must get worse before it gets better, but what do we need to do in order for all these events to come to the conclusion instead of enduring as long as we have? What do we need to do? Luke 24, verse 49. Here's what Jesus told his disciples what they needed to do. And it's the same thing. Nothing has changed. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be in due with power from on high. This is the requirement. This is something that is necessary. We need to remain for what purpose? You know, even now, sometimes we have churches are closed and things of that nature. We obviously still should find ways to gather together in small groups. I know some places they want to forbid even uh, visitors to come to your house, but that's another subject we can think about that and compare that to the early Christian church where they were forbidden as well. But the thing is what we need to be doing is praying earnestly together for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need power. We need a power that is not... There's no power that is in this world like this. You know, we have media, we have all these different things, and you know, sometimes we, we preach a message on the, uh, on the media, and what happens? People look at it, you see so many thousand people that have watched it, and whatever else, and some places you even see how many million people watch that, especially musical programs that people like enjoying watching. That's not what we need. That's something we can use, but that's not what we need. What we need as a people today is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. And we should be making use of this opportunity as we are looking at the new year coming up very quickly is do we have the power of the Holy Spirit upon us? You know, this last week I was visiting different places and I found people who used to be members today and for various reasons and sometimes, yeah, maybe we were in fault as a church the way we treated them and everything else, but they fell so far away that they're not even believing the Bible. They're not even believing in Christianity. And you look at them and you, your heart weeps over them and you're looking at them thinking, well, if they only knew. Well, how do you reach that heart? How do we who have had so many failures in the past reach such a heart? Well, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we can't do it ourselves. Yeah, as I was listening to some of them this last week, my heart was tearing, but I realized there's nothing I can do to change that. I can tell them my own experience, but I can't change their heart. But the Holy Spirit can. And yes, as I look at them, I'm hoping to see them in the kingdom of heaven. Today they're saying, no, I don't want any of this. But I want to see them in the kingdom of heaven. And how am I going to see them in the kingdom of heaven unless we're working together with the power of the Holy Spirit? A power above and outside of ourselves. That's what we need. That's our preparation. The preparation that we have is the preparation for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? How do we do that? How did the early Christian church prepare for the early reign so that we can prepare for the latter reign? Yes, we saw Jesus breathe on them, the Holy Ghost. Yes, that was to get their hearts ready to do what? What were they to do? Notice Testimonies of Ministers, page 507. It was by confession and forsaking of sin, by earnest prayer and consecration of themselves to God, that the early disciples prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The same work, only in greater degree, must be done now. This is the work of preparation. When we're talking about prepare, 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 what does that mean? It means that we as a people are confessing and forsaking our sins. That's what it means. Including if we have discouraged some members of the church, some of the young people and children who listened to this gospel message and something that we did, they looked at us and said, wow, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And they ran away from Christianity. Yes, we need to be able to see ourselves as we really are confession of sin, forsaking of sin. Let me read it again. It was by the confession and forsaking of sin, by earnest prayer and consecration of themselves to God. That's what we need to be doing today. Are we earnestly praying for these souls? Are we consecrating ourselves to God so that we can be used by God In this final work. That's what the disciples were doing for those ten days in the upper room. They came to that one mind. Why? Because all sin has been put away. Their own actions and interactions with each other had to be dealt with. Yeah, put all that away from their mind. And this is why it's the same work only in greater degree that must be done now. That's what we need to be doing today. And then, not only that, we need, especially those in leadership positions, whatever it is, and it's not just ministers and the pay, paid workers, but everyone who has a responsibility in the church needs to look at the church members and make sure they have work to do. They may not be given a formal assignment. That doesn't matter. They need something to do. Why is that? Christian Service 253. The great outpouring of the Spirit of God which lightens the whole earth with His glory will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's not coming until our people have an understanding heart and know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. And then he goes on. Look at the rest of the statement. When we have entire wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of His Spirit without measure. But this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. Yeah, the largest part of the church. That's why it's so important for us as church officers in whatever capacity we have to get our members involved. And get even the young people involved in some way, even those that have not made a decision, get them involved. In volume 9, 117, when we think about the finishing of the work, the completion of the work, when is it going to happen? It says here, the work of God in this earth can never be finished until the men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. Yes, that's what's going to bring the conclusion of the work. Yeah, all these things that we're talking about, all these different events that we're talking about, we need the church membership to be involved. And especially which members? Yeah, there are some group of members that really need to be involved in the finishing of this work. And we find that in education, page 271. With such an army of workers as our youth rightly trained might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified risen and soon coming Savior might be carried to the whole world. How soon might the end come, the end of suffering and sorrow and sin. We need what? We need an army of workers, especially young people, rightly trained. Yeah, this is why every youth, if you're a youth listening to this presentation right now, if you're sitting here thinking about your life, what are you going to do with it? Right now is your opportunity to get trained, to be involved in the closing scenes of this earth's history. And right now, as we're coming to the end of the year, I want you to know that just in, in about a month's time, yeah, we're going to be starting a special missionary school program in Plymouth Leadership College in California. You still have time to, to apply. I know that there's a lot of work to do, especially for gospel workers. You've got to read the book and take all the tests before you even go there. But that's an opportunity. You can do that in a month if you really put your mind to it. If you want to be part of this army of workers, of young people who are rightly trained to bring the second coming of Christ, you have this opportunity right now, not to wait for something else, but to dedicate one semester of your future right now to this. You can go to campus. .plymouthcollege.us and you can get the information on it or you can write to me or call me up or something like that we can get you in touch with it but we need training we need to get ready we need to see the work of god finished and right now as you're thinking about the future as you're thinking about the preparation that you need for the future right now as you look at the work that needs to be done We just take a look at our field here. We take a look at the state of Georgia and Florida where this conference is composing right now that's specially designed for them. Think of all the cities. Think of all the places that have not been reached. We need an army of young people ready to go out there and evangelize all these places. But we need the training. And the question for you today, the question I want to leave for every one of you that are here, Listen to this program. is found in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. Today. Right now. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to say to the Lord, Here am I. Send me. Take me just as I am. Do with me whatever you want to do. Go ahead, Lord. Use me. Yes, if you're prepared for that, if you're ready to make that type of decision, then you're getting ready for the final events of this earth's history. And right now, if you're struggling with this whole issue of here am I, send me. What I want you to do right now, I know we we are doing all this remotely, but we can still have an altar call. Right now, you can come to the altar of the Lord and surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Right now, this is an opportune time. You can look at all your failures, whatever they may have been. And I want you, by faith, to grasp the idea that Jesus is looking at you with his mercy and tenderness, willing to forgive, willing to accept you just as you are and make such a change that you yourself will never even recognize who you are. If you're prepared for that, then I'd like to invite you to bow your knees together with me and ask the Lord to come into your heart and be the one that God is using to bring it all to a completion in this world's history. Let us bow our knees. Our gracious, loving Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you that you still give us opportunities to examine our heart and to surrender ourselves to you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of our many failings. But now, Lord, give us courage not just to receive your pardoning favor, but strength to overcome. Right now, there may be some who have listened to this message. Their hearts are touched. We ask your Holy Spirit may touch their hearts in a special way. Help them not just to be touched, but that they will come to the point of surrender. That they'll surrender themselves fully to you and say, here am I, send me Lord. Help them to experience that experience of Isaiah when the coal, live coal, was taken from off the altar and changed his life. There may be young people right now that don't know what their future holds for them, but they want to get their preparation, help them to get ready right now, help them to sign up to missionary school, even if it's not this one now, but to any missionary school that they have the opportunity. But there may be some that right now, this is what they need to do. And come to school and be trained, forgive us, Lord, for our past neglects, for neglecting other opportunities. And help us right now that we may surrender our life fully to you and that we as a people may be prepared for the events that are coming upon this world. Help us as a church to be able to encourage our young people, especially those that have left the fold. Lord, help us that we may have compassion upon them. And when we see them, that we may not be scolding them, but that we may show them that we really love them and that Jesus loves them and that we want to be saved together in the kingdom of heaven. Help us as a people to be ready, is our prayer in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.